The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with two of my favorite contributors. I'm here with Ohio State professor and author of America Goddamn, Treva Lindsay. Welcome, Treva. I think you are muted, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm loving the new hairstyle. It looks cool, really cool. Thank like you. Who's on a sabbatical? But who's that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also, LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano is back with us. Hello, Gustavo. Gracias. Gracias for having me, as always. And probably after being on the show 50 times, I'm going to pronounce your last name correctly, but. Uh, you got it. You got it. You got nothing to worry my, about. Oh, uh, head, not my heart, because you know I love you dearly. So I'm so happy <laughs> to have you back. Uh, all right. I, I sent both of you guys this article that was written in the LA Times today. And Gustavo was written by a couple of your, uh, I assume, colleagues over at the LA Times, Matt Hamilton in particular. And I know Matt is an investigative reporter. And it's a story about donors who are giving money or who have given money for this legal defense fund for a L.A. City Council member. His name is Mark Ridley Thomas, friend of mine, no secret there. And the show is going to be covering gavel to gavel this federal bribery trial that begins for Mark Ridley Thomas tomorrow. We're going to have a justice correspondent in our second hour who's going to be joining us every day as we bring folks uh, the latest and take them inside that courtroom. But I was reading this article, Gustavo. I'll start with you. And I'm going to ask Treva after I ask you, because I could be biased because I've known Mark a long time, but I just felt that an undertone of this article was how dare this black man who works for the city, who gets a government salary, how dare him have the gall, the unmitigated gall, the audacity to start a legal fund, which they acknowledge is completely legal for an elected official to do so. But to do that and raise the kind of money, don't uh, loan money to himself and hire these what they call high price lawyers, thousand dollar an hour lawyer, which if you know anything about lawyers, that's pretty much the going rate for partners in big law firms. That (laughs) that could be a thousand to two thousand dollars. And when the United States government is indicting you, prosecuting you, I mean, it's the resources of the government. It's the U.S. attorney's office, every Harvard, Stanford, Yale, UCLA graduate wants to work in that office. So they got some of the best lawyers, the same lawyers who are going to leave that office and go be those partners charging a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars an hour. So if the government can have the best lawyers, how is it that somebody who's being prosecuted by the government can't do the same as long as they're doing it legally and asking their friends who love them? Hey, give me, you know, help me out here. I don't know. I didn't like the tone of the article, Gustavo. I mean, <laughs> Matt is a friend of mine. Katie Licari is also one of our awesome fellows. I saw it more as just our continued coverage of here's this legend, this legendary politician, longtime supervisor, council member who, yeah, is going on trial. There has been no uh, nothing proved. You know, he gets that, like every person gets his day in court, but he does come in the wake of. A lot of interesting things happening at the L.A. City Council and two of his former colleagues, Mitch Englander and Jose Huizar, which full disclosure, Jose Huizar is from the same part of Mexico where my family's from. So 
he's not my friend, but I know people who know him and we've seen him as parties. So you want to talk about embarrassment. Oh man, me and we saw it. But anyway, so we saw it in Englander. They pled guilty. They're like, nah, we see the government. We're not going to do it. But also they weren't legends like Mark Ridley Thomas. Mark Ridley, Mark, on the other hand, he's like, all right, I've been around here for a while. People know me. People know all the things that I've done for South L.A. as a supervisor, as a council member. So I'm going to lean on them. So if you read, the, you know, if folks read the article, they'll see people saying like, hey, he's a friend of mine. I know he's good. Of course, I'm going to give money. But look at your word, Gustavo. You said lean on them. Versus ask my friends to help me out. I'm in a bad spot. These are people I've known for 50 years. And I'm glad you brought up Weezar and Englander because I felt like the article was saying these guys took a plea deal. And I think Weezar had a public defender. So it was almost again, and Treva, I don't know, I could be reading too much into this, but I know you study African-American history. It was like this black guy, how dare him not plead guilty and the article at one point says he was defiant. Well, if you think you're innocent, yeah, you're probably going to be defiant. <laughs> uh, not plea or not have a public defender or a, you know, lower price lawyer. And maybe I'm triggered because <laughs> I'll tell you why. In the Chris Rock special, he says his mother, not, and he makes this joke, not Harriet Tubman, but his mother had to go to a vet to get her teeth pulled. Because in this town in South Carolina, in 1945, 1955, if you were black and the black dentist couldn't take you because their list was too long and you couldn't get in, you had to go to a vet. You couldn't go to a white dentist. And he was so proud to say, now I fly my mother to Paris twice a year to have coffee with my daughter who's in culinary school in Paris. So, you know, in your face kind of to racism. So I don't know, maybe watching that and then reading this article, like the dude wants the best lawyer that money can purchase. And I would think anybody, black, white, red, or green, if you're indicted by the federal government, that's what you would want. Jump in, Dreva. Sure. I mean, I, I think that's the case. I think that that is what you would want. I think a lot of terms obviously can be very loaded and very triggering for us, right? Defiant can register in a particular way when it's a black man being described as defiant. Um, but defiant is not a bad thing if you're on trial and being accused of things that you um, believe you haven't done. I think you would be um, defying certain expectations and doing that. So I think, again, that I understand why the language would be triggering and a, a figuration because of the ways that we know often that Black people in this nation are covered and are seen especially when it comes to the legal system, our relationship to the legal system and the expectations that people have of how, how we're going to navigate that, not taking a plea, not um, in any way conceding guilt in any particular way when we have a, a criminal legal system that's often predicated upon pleas, right? I mean, a large part of our legal system is based on the fact and the hope that people take pleas and feel the threat of the legal system at their door. And I think the lean on, um, Reen, again, I said, like, I wouldn't have read it necessarily negatively, except for the fact that we know that there's a language of kind of criminality and, you know, not quite above boredness that often traffics alongside Black people's identity. So yes, I'm asking all my rich friends to help me if I'm on trial for something that that I, I, I won't any pretend. of us if our right. friends aren't rich and it's like hey man let's do a carne asada like the, right, free right. the homie defense <laughs> exactly. yeah I'm like, like if I'm on trial I want 
I want the Johnny Cochran. I want the Lawrence Tribe. I want Charles Ogletree. I want them all wrapped up in one. If they all cost $5,000 an hour, <laughs> I want that because that's what exactly. the government is bringing all of that and more to bear with the, re- the endless resources that the government has. So Absolutely. we're going to talk about that. I just, like I said, I think we all, Gustavo, and, and you can pass this on to Matt, when you're writing about Black folks, <laughs> you know, you got that language, man. Check it out with your cultural department, your DEI department, somebody at that LA Times yeah. because people don't necessarily mean language to, to right. have an implicit bias to it, but there is language that we are so, you know, that that does have, it's coded. It's it's a totally folks. fair, it's a totally fair critique. We got the same critiques when we were covering Jose. We saw, I mean, with the whole Kevin DeLeon scandal, we got so much right. blowback, especially from Latinos saying, well, why are you standing with the quote unquote blacks? What you're supposed to stand with Latinos and myself and a lot of my Latino colleagues are like, no, anti-blackness is anti-blackness. And it's even worse when it's coming from Latinos because we should know better. We historically have had alliances with black politicians. We were part of that coalition who brought in uh, Tom Bradley and also Mark Ridley Thomas. Cause let's not forget uh, nowadays yeah. South LA is majority Latino and has been for a while, even if the voting uh, you know, the voting blocks aren't necessarily just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it just, just shows how much work we have to do in journalism, how much work we have to do in media, how much work we have to do, period, around issues of race and marginalized people. And just because you become an elected official or a professor or someone of affluence, at the end of the day, you're still black, you're still brown. Uh, and we have to be careful about how we use language when talking about those folks. I want to talk about uh, Christopher Columbus's journal uh, describing his brutal treatment of indigenous people and the, the New York police use of force data. Some t- schools are saying we're not teaching that anymore. We're just doing away with any of those facts we don't like about race, right, about gender, about LB, uh, LGBTQ issues. Uh, Professor Lindsay, I'll call you now Professor Lindsay, <laughs> you are at a university. What the heck? How can we expect the journalists to be sensitive to these race issues when they're going to go through a whole program at a university and not be able to talk about these race issues? Now, I'm, I'm going to hold these guys that are already working. <laughs> hold them a little different, accountable a little differently. But if you're 18, 19, 20 and you're in college today and you can't talk about the truth about Christopher Columbus or the truth about New York and its use of force and it's stop and frisk and all of its other policies that are targeted, you know, racial profiling. What are we raising? What what, what can we expect of people when they go into the workplace? Ooh, um, well, we can't <laughs> expect a lot. Um, I think this is a very targeted campaign. Um, it is absolutely targeting marginalized communities. It is targeting knowledge bases that are so important to those who are in search of an actualized democracy that what we're seeing is a pivot in all arenas of life, be that care, healthcare, be that education, where we are in terms of adjusting criminal justice reform in the nation, the environment. We're seeing all of these things colliding in a hard pivot to the right. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that, acknowledge the language that's being used in this moment, not to mince words about what's happening and to be pointed in our critiques, first of all, as an educator, that I got into this because I want to share robust truths about marginalized communities. And so I am willing now, now my job is a lot riskier than it was just three years ago. 
doing the work that I do, particularly as a women, gender, and sexuality studies professor. I'm teaching about the history of abortion. I'm teaching about the history of trans rights. I'm teaching about the history of queer communities. I invite drag queens to my classroom. And these are all sites where we're seeing very, very orchestrated and effective attacks from all kinds of organizations that are being funded and are winning. And they're winning in a way that has a deep impact on our elections, that has a deep impact on our courts, that has a deep impact on the ways we even relate on an interpersonal level in our communities. And so I think this is very intentional. And I think those of us who are fearful of what's coming and angry about what's coming, enraged about what's coming, have to do our parts with whatever skills we have to rail against this, to be defiant, (laughs) right? (laughs) To be defiant. 25 states, Gustavo, have passed 64 laws just in the last three years that change what students can learn. How far does this culture war, Rick DeSantis, Ron, is it Ron DeSantis? Ron, yeah, Ron DeSantis. I'm thinking of Rick Scott and Ron Ron DeFashion. Ron DeFashion. I'm I'm just combining their names. So Ron's at at Ronald Reagan. That's Orange County, California, right outside of Los Angeles. He's auditioning for the 24 Republican nomination, testing the waters in California, small Republican Party in California, but still a Republican Party here. How far does... You know, does he get to stoke these culture wars, you think? And, you know, do they give him a ticket into that number one slot for the Republican, you know, nominee? He and others are going to stoke it all the way to what they think is going to be an electoral sweep, because to the professor's point, folks like her and others are winning in the most important ways, hearts and minds. When you talk to young people as a reporter, I could tell you that. Some of my most popular stories or columnists are the ones about history because people realize, I mean, we're reporting the truth. The professor's teaching the truth. These are not lies. These are things that happen. And these young men and women and and other folks, they think, why haven't we been told this before? And if they're not Mm -hmm. telling us this, what else are they hiding from us? This is why, you know, this is why there's been so much hatred to Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project and critical race theory and ethnic studies and all of this stuff. And DeSantis, he's no dummy. He knows that there is a big section of the American population who says we do not want the truth out. We we want our history to be very simple. It was Reagan. It was Washington. It was Lincoln. (laughs) And just leave it at that. And so they are going to beat this drum through the 2024 election and beyond. I mean, you remember, Republicans now run a lot of the state legislatures. They're going to continue to pass these laws. This is just the beginning. And yeah, this it is far more dangerous to be a professor now or a teacher or a librarian or anyone who wants mm-hmm. to just teach the basic truth about our this nation and its past than ever before. And what's scary, Gustavo, you raise a good point. Republicans control a lot of our state legislatures, which means they control a lot of state universities. So they have the power to dictate what those state universities can do. I have a friend who's a uh, college professor in a state that is run by Republicans and the Republican governor gets to put on his board his appointees. So these boards now are pretty much dictating to this president what he can and cannot do. And he's having to question whether he can even stay in this job because he has this Republican run board uh, that is you know, putting its nose in the business of the day-to-day operations of a college in a way that they're not qualified to do so. And, you know, he has real concerns about the pressure that it's putting on him and what it's doing to his teaching staff. And 
I mean, so these, these states have a lot of power beyond just passing laws. They control the boards of some of these state universities. And then not to mention these private universities who are getting on board, you know, taking up the, the MAGA mantra and changing their own uh, curriculum and, you know, banning books and banning certain topics. It's a really scary time to not only be a professor, I think, but to be a teacher, uh, teacher at a high school and to be a student. Uh, when we come forward, we're going to talk about the Chris Rock letting loose, what that means and where does he go next? What does it mean for uh, Will Smith, who has a big movie that's out as we get into the uh, pre-Oscar season? Uh, stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. Today. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and we are tracking today's trending news, and I am joined in this hour by my two contributors, Gustavo Ariano. He is a columnist at the LA Times. You have read his columns before, always insightful, and also joining me is Professor Treva Lindsay. She's a professor at Ohio State University. Okay, Treva, I know you're on sabbatical, but did you get a chance to watch that cricket? Chris Rock's special on Netflix yet? I did get an opportunity to watch it. Um, that is part of sabbatical life, getting to <laughs> at least attempt to have some fun. <laughs> All right. So give me your like gut reaction. Well, what did you think? <laughs> it wasn't my favorite. I'll say that. I think he covered a lot of ground. Um in it, I, I, I felt very, this is part of where I felt like, oh, I'm actually the kind of micro generation between Gen X and millennials because it felt very anti-millennial, anti-Gen Z at some point. So, um, but I also just felt from a comedic standpoint that it didn't grab me in the way that I was, ho was hoping it would. I mean, Chris Rock is a very smart comedian. Um, and has specials that are among some of my favorite in the last 30 or so years. And yet I felt that this one, maybe because the anticipation was so high, given mm -hmm. what we all were waiting to hear his own response to that. Um, some of the jokes to me felt like I'd heard them before, even from him. Um, <laughs> whether it was, you know, he has a pretty particular kind of respectability politics that plays into some of his comedy. Um, he has a certain kind of relationship to women that comes out through some of this. In particular, it's notable to me that he chose to do the special in Baltimore, which is Jada Pinkett Smith's hometown, um, as opposed to like Philly. I was kind of hoping he was going to go to Philly and like go hard with it uh, about Will, the, the kind of using the skills that he has against the Will Smith. So I was a little... You know, what's somewhere between underwhelmed? Like. I was a little <laughs> underwhelmed. I was going to say maybe just whelmed. Um, <laughs> underwhelmed. There were things that I did. Well, laugh let me at. jump to the end because, again, spoiler alert. It's the end where he really goes all in on the Will Smith slap and the controversy. How, what do you feel about how he handled that? I mean, I think he got off his chest. I can tell it still feels very raw from him. And I want to honor that. Um, I was a little shocked how much of the antagonism was towards Jada. I think that was the part that was a little shocking for me to hear. Um, there were some words used to describe her and 
they have their own kind of 25 year history. I mean, this <laughs> dates back in certain ways to jokes being made and, and, and interactions that have happened in 1997. So I think that, you know, I was a little shocked by that. I was expecting even more to go towards Will than Jada. Um, but he really kind of attacked the Smiths broadly. And yeah. I think he has every right to. I don't in any way want to diminish that he was hurt by what happened. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely he was assaulted. I have no argument against the fact that that is, in fact, what happened on that stage. And I also expected more from Chris Rock. I, I honestly did. I expected something smarter. That's what mm -hmm. I guess I should say in terms of his own analysis of that. Did I have a couple chuckles? Sure. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Gustavo? Have you had a chance to watch it yet? Oh, yeah. I saw it live. Chris Rock, one of my top five comedians of all time. Okay. Uh, you talk about the respectability politics. He lands a lot with you know the Latino community because of that, for better or for worse. I give this one a B. I laughed throughout. I did. But him and just too many comedians right now, they're obsessed with wokeness. They're obsessed with mm -hmm. trans anything. It's like, come on, man, be smarter, move on. There was a really great essay in the Baltimore Banner. It's a nonprofit news agency out in Baltimore. And it specifically talked about how, OK, we get it. You got socked by Will Smith. You're that did not make you happy. But did you have to take it on Jada? Did you have to just go at her, you know, using the B word, using and going to Baltimore, having it there. It's like, come on, Chris, you should. It's not like you're not going to be above that. And you have every right to not be above that. But you are better than that. But didn't it feel like that was all about continuing to needle at will, like taking, you know, the little knife and turning oh, yeah. it like you're you you think I've done your wife in. You, you think I did her in at the Oscars. Let me show you what I'm going to do and what I'm capable of doing. That's kind of how I read it. Like it was a purposeful, more in your face. You think you've got the last laugh. And yes, you're bigger than me. You train for Muhammad Ali. You got the part. Of course, you know, I'm a little guy, blah, blah, blah. He goes on about their size differential. But I, it felt like I am going to every way that I can punish you. And I'm going to punish you by, you know, degrading your wife because he really laid in on her affair yes. with the, you know, the son's friend. And he really wanted to just basically paint her as the worst version of a woman, right? He wanted us to think she was this like slut. She was this, who does that? Like who has an affair with their sons? You know, he's all indignant about that. So I knew yeah. too, that, that was probably making your blood boil as a woman. I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just felt unnecessary. I mean, here's the thing. There was so much to say about Will. Like, if you wanted to do that, and I know Chris Rock, that that thing that Gustavo was mentioning here, Chris Rock is smarter than this. And that is what lacked for me. And so for me, once again, tapping into that specific form of misogyny that we've talked about before, Reva, that noir mm -hmm. as a way to get at him, that that, again, just reasserts the fact that, like, I'm going to denigrate this other person because I know it hurts you, but yeah. I don't care that it's extraordinarily hurtful to this woman. And even if he felt a type of way about her, it's interesting, you know, he used the B word to talk about Jada, but he talked about the behavior of Will being like it, the, the behavior of him, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Versus her being one. And so even in that, I'm like, this man slapped you. This man harmed you. This man created see, this moment. But Trima, in this he feels like the man slapped him because he was defending the woman 
that he wanted us to be clear about he has absolutely zero respect for. Right. So it's like, you're defending this B and, you know, now I'm going to really just put your whole personal business out, you know, for well, if, if anybody forgot about it, let me remind right. you. Right. I was like, it's a Smith. We all know on any given day what they're having for lunch, right? I mean, right. But dealing with like, in, in case you forgot, <laughs> there was a whole interview and who does, I mean, he was this, 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 I don't know, this kind of selective in- indignation, Gustavo. Which uh, selective outrage, like, just like yes. his the title the of title. his special. When he was going specifically at Will, he was brilliant, saying, you yes. know, I took it like Pacquiao. Uh, you know, if, when, if there's open <laughs> heart surgery on me, I'm still wearing a sweater. Homeboy's bigger than me. That was smart. That was getting right at him. And yeah, you were going to go after the wife, but that's easy picking. In his mind, that's easy pickings because people are always going to be, oh my gosh, I can't believe they have an open relationship. We're still such a prudish society that it just the idea that Jada and Will love each, they say we love each other. We're also having a relationship where we're talking about these things. That just going back to this idea of respectable respectability politics. Oh my God, that's like the antithesis of this. So Chris was just going at what he thought was going to be like the most shocking thing. No, the most shocking thing is that Will, who's bigger than you, slapped you and you as a small man, you didn't back down. And then, you know, I still think his best time was the one that he said at the Academy Award said, this is the greatest moment ever. This is the most hilarious moment ever. Like that worked. That yes. worked. Well, his respectability politics too. the very last sentence, you know, he pays homage to his parents. So his parents still have, you know, he's remembering his lessons growing up about how do you respond to a bully? And, you know, that's his, you know, mic drop moments. Excuse me, spoiler alert, but you need to watch it. And don't worry, you won't remember anything we said here today. And you'll still either enjoy it or you'll, I don't know, Gustavo gives it a B. Where are you, Treva? C, C minus. It was average for Chris. That is the thing. I have high expectations for Chris Rock and this didn't do it for me. And I actually heard in the Philly version of the show when he was kind of working on this material, he actually did it in reverse order. And oh, so the Will okay. Smith stuff started mm. the show because right, it was like, okay. I'm going to dive right in. And I think this one was trying to give the build because everyone was coming to see that. And to it's watch it. live airing on Netflix. It's, you know, new kind of opportunity and platforming of this. And so it kept people going until the end. Oh, yeah, you had response. to watch it because I was like, okay, dude, I need you to tell me what you're going to say about right. Will Smith <laughs> or else I'm going to be like going to the Soprano reruns or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was better than part. Chappelle. Yeah, I thought it was well, better than Chappelle as well. Yeah, because Chappelle, okay. it was just whiny, 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 whiny. Chris at least was funny. Last Chappelle ones that I've seen, I haven't even laughed. As I do, come on, okay, you're you're making yourself out to be a free free speech warrior when you're not. You're not. You're just bullying at this point. But I think what you say, Gustavo, is so true. These comedians are in this weird place. They don't know how to deal with this whole concept of cancel culture and, and wokeness. So they're taking pot shots at it. They're really going after it. And this whole, you know, like. Chris Rock spends the first 45 minutes talking about the hypocrisy <laughs> and woke culture and cancel culture. I, 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 when we come forward, I want to talk about the daughters. I don't know. Something about what he said about those daughters drove me a little crazy, too. Mm-hmm. Say with this KPLA Talk mm-hmm. 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and I'm joined by my brilliant contributors, Professor Treva 
Lindsay and LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano. And real quickly, Treva, the part Chris Rock special, the part that focuses on his two daughters. What do you think about that part? Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, not not a not a fan, um, not a fan at all. Um, but that's unsurprising. I think that that Chris Rock has a has a has a gender issue, um, and I think that runs through even specials of his that I do enjoy. Um, I think there is a consistent way that women and girls show up in his comedic performance that are not particularly um, thoughtful um, for me um, or thought provoking in ways that are interesting and aligned with the other very sharp and incisive kind of critiques, commentaries um, of that without giving too much away for those who haven't watched. I just find myself always disappointed um, when he gets to the parts where he's homing in on the experiences and his experiences with girls and women, especially those who like are familiarly related to him, connected to yeah, him. Yeah, sitting there cringing like, oh my God. Like, yeah, it was a lot. Daughter in culinary school, please don't be watching this because this is a <laughs> lot. But okay, we'll, lot. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll revisit this. I got to move on. Uh, Gustavo, Sunday was Bloody Sunday, uh, the reenactment of that march across the uh, Pettus Bridge in, in Selma, Alabama. And Biden says, look, I'm going to keep pushing for you know, enhanced voting protections, even though he's facing this Republican Congress who's not likely to give an inch on voting rights. And then you have activists and Reverend William Barber, who's the you know co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, saying, look, we're frustrated, Joe Biden. We're frustrated with the lack of progress. So is Biden in just a, a box? Is he in a position where, you know, he's damned if he do and damned if he doesn't? I mean, it seems like he can't get this right on voting rights. He's saying the words that needs to be said. He's walking with the people that he needs to walk to, but he does not have the power in Congress right now. It is a slim majority, and you would only need a couple of Republicans to get a sense of decency and conscience and try to pass these voter, you know, the, to strengthen voter rights and to strengthen the vote. But we're also in uh, in a Capitol Hill with a Republican Party where too many of them still think stop the steal and Dominion's evil and all these sort of things. Again, I I've, I say all the time when I talk about Joe Biden, I think people give him way too hard of a time. I think he's doing far better than everyone's making him out to be. And so I feel for the guy. I feel for the guy. I know he <laughs> wants to do this. He he's really pushing for this because he also knows that it's not just the right thing to do. It's the politically smart thing to do as 2024 comes in. No, good point. Obviously, he's uh, a strategist among strategists. So we mm -hmm. know that this he knows that this is not going to just be, like you said, the right thing to do. It's not just the right thing for black folks. This is the right thing for the Democratic Party if we want to save our democracy. Uh, but Treva, do you think Barber and, and those activists have a point and that it is because of their willingness to express their frustration you know, maybe that works. I, I don't know. As, as Gustavo said, it's not a whole lot he can do in terms of that Congress. We just got to go back and win the House in 2024. Uh, but does it help to have someone as prominent as Reverend William Barber and others, uh, activists writing to Congress and writing to Biden, trying to push them to do more? I think that is the role of the activist. It's the role of the organizer. We are supposed to have critiques. We are supposed to be pushing. We can't be singular in our focus. We have to keep pressure on Biden. That doesn't mean that Biden's not doing something, but to say to keep the pressure that, look, we need this. 
you need this. <laughs> um, the Democratic Party needs this. Voters in this country, irrespective of party, need this. We need access to the ballot. And so I think it's important in understanding the role of organizers, of activists, of voices like Reverend Barber that remain at the forefront, that keep voting rights amidst a country where we have so many things happening right now. We could talk about it from climate change, Hob City, home rule in D.C., um, there's so many things, inflation that are keeping you right now. How do we keep voting rights in the center as well as mm -hmm. alongside that? And I think that is the job of activists, of organizers, of groups to ensure that voting rights is still a top priority for all of those who are invested in actualizing a democracy. So th this is happening, this push for voting rights, Gustavo. At the same time, we saw that the California uh, Reparations Task Force had uh, the weekend meetings. They had testimony. They had oral stories from African-Americans. And they're going to be out with a report in July 1st, on July 1st, uh, with their recommendations. What are you expecting from this task force? What are you expecting the pushback to be? We saw what happened last week when that article came out about the San Francisco task force and their recommendations that every black person that lived in San Francisco during a certain period get a $5 million check. The, the response to that, the backlash was swift. It was pretty intense. What are you expecting happens? You know, it comes out of this California task force that says, hey, we want to be a model for the country. We want to show the country what reparations can look like. And we know as California goes, so does the rest of the state. So San Francisco. Yeah, San Francisco is always going to be San Francisco. They're going to go for it. California, especially this reparations task force, they know that this is the model. This is the most populous state, the most the richest state in the United States, fourth biggest economy as a world in the world, as Gavin Newsom always says. So they want to do something that other people can emulate. And yeah, there's always going to be a segment of the population that says, no, that's in the past. We don't need this. My colleague, Erica D. Smith, has also talked about some of the controversies involved, like who would qualify some, you know, and that's one of the things that the reparations and task force is talking about. Is it going to be all black people? It doesn't seem like it's going to be all black people. So in other words, folks, if you're first generation from Africa, you're not going to qualify for it. But then also the idea is like, oh, you have to prove that your ancestors were enslaved. Well, that's going to be very, very problematic for especially folks who do not have those documents. Like, how do you prove? Like, what, on the census? No or, one has or their ancestor <laughs> slave documents. I don't think yeah. any of us are carrying around those documents. So yeah, that's that, going to be that, hard, yeah. That's going to be really tough. But, Treva, what are you thinking in this moment? How shocking mm -hmm. is it to you that we're even at a point where there is a task force that is meeting, mm -hmm. that is about to give recommendations, you know, they have their controversies, that San Francisco came out and says, look, $5 million, uh, not many folks believe it's going to pass in that fashion, mm -hmm. but we're having mainstream conversations about what used to be a fringe concept. Yes. And I mean, it's been a concept that's been around. I think people think the reparations conversation is new and people have been talking about reparations since emancipation. So <laughs> it's very important to think about the long history of this and when it actually would have been a little easier um, in the aftermath of this to really decide how this is going to look, if it's going to look this way. I think you do have wide scale opposition to it across the country. And I think it's a steep hill climb. Um, irrespective of that. But it is meaningful that this is happening, that this recommendation is going to come out 
and that we're going to have to take this seriously because they're aware that it's going to be taken seriously in terms of how we're talking about reparations at a national level with regards to Black communities in the United States. And I think it's important from a historical standpoint for those of us who've been involved in reparations movements to be clear about what the continued need for these conversations, these task force, these reports, um, these recommendations are in the wake of so much pushback to the idea right. that there's racism. It's no, it's not shocking that at the same moment people are banning critical race theory, saying we have to teach slavery in this way, we can't teach Columbus in this way, that we somehow jump from slavery to like Martin Luther King and then everything's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at textbook controversies, what's happening at New College in Florida, we can AP African American studies yes. that there's a concerted effort of having a lack of information, a gap in information out there that would actually provide us with even more insight into why we are talking about reparations and why it would be significant and so meaningful for the descendants of slaves um, in the United States. So I think those two happening at the same time is very telling. Real quickly, Gustavo, Governor Newsom, up or down on reparations? Oh, he's going to be up. He better he better be up. And he does really care about the issue. He do, he really does. I mean, okay. he knows. But again, he it's, about, you know, that he, White House, too. And I don't know if voting for <laughs> reparations. He, he cares about that White, White House, House, but I do think it comes from a good place in his heart as well. Although, of course, he is going to disappoint just like California is. But at least, again, they want to make it something that's going to work. Yeah. Well, I have to leave it there. You guys have been amazing as usual. Again, LA Times columnist uh, Gustavo Ariano and Ohio State University professor Treva Lindsay. Thanks so much for lending your brilliance. Always a pleasure to see both of you. In my second hour, it's all about true crime and why are we so fascinated with real life murder and crimes that really impact people. And in this Second hour, I'm taking your calls, 1-800-920-1580. Give me a call. I want to hear from you when we come forward after news, sports, and traffic. It's all about true crime. Right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Like stock blinds offered at big box retailers, Blindster blinds are custom made for your windows and shipping is free. Don't hire an expensive pro. Do it yourself and save big at Blindster.com. Is this, this is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Ray Richardson. UCLA moved up to number two in this week's AP men's college basketball rankings. It's the first time the Bruins have been ranked number two in the country in the regular season since February 26, 2007. The Bruins riding a 10-game winning streak, are 27-4 overall, 18-2 in the Pac-12 conference. Houston is number one. The top five after UCLA, Kansas, Alabama, and Purdue. Hottest team in the NBA right now, the New York Knicks. The Knicks are 12 games over 500 after winning nine straight. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron at Original Taco Pete's. Come in today for our tasty seasoned black taco. We're at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw or call 323-348-4441. If you're not listening to Tavis Smiley weekday mornings on KBLA Talk 1580, you're missing out. Everybody wants to talk to Tavis. That's one reason, by the way, why I'm so thrilled to have this conversation with you today. The three people I always most hoped would interview me were Phil Donahue, Studs Turkle, and Tavis Smiley. Donahue's retired, Turkle's deceased, so this is a real thrill for me. And the reason why I have such respect for what you do is you have a historically informed conversation of depth and detail. Be sure to tune
tune in to Tavis Smiley, weekday mornings, 9 a.m. to 12 noon, on your unapologetically progressive radio station, KBLA Talk 1580. Lawmakers in Florida are introducing more bills to reshape education. The ideals include strengthening parents' ability to veto K-12 class materials and extending a ban on teaching about gender and sexuality. At least 25 states have already passed 64 laws in the past three academic years that change what students can learn and do. Passages from Christopher Columbus's journal describing his brutal treatment of indigenous peoples, a data set on New York police's use of force analyzed by race. These are among the items teachers have nixed from their lesson plans this school year and last, facing pressure from parents worried about political indoctrination, administrators wary of controversy, and a spate of new state laws restricting education on race, gender, and LGBTQ issues. Well, Chris Rock finally let loose on getting slapped at the Oscars. The comedian told his story in a live Netflix stand-up special Saturday night, nearly a year after actor and rapper Will Smith hit him on stage over a joke about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. We can't repeat a lot of the language, but he joked about infidelity in the Smith's relationship and said he still has Smith's 90s hit, Summertime, ringing in his ears. In California, a speech that drew protests, Ron DeSantis stokes fights over the pandemic. The Florida governor's speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library served as an audition before conservatives for a Republican many expect to run for president in 2024. And mental health care providers are scarce, as we all know, in the United States. In fact, in 2019, there were only 14 practicing child and adolescent psychiatrists for every 100,000 children. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry says that children with the most serious diagnoses wait on average several years for appropriate treatment. An increasing number of teens are being certified to help their peers since it's very common for young people to first turn to a friend rather than an adult. And Alex Murdoch was sentenced Friday to two consecutive life terms for murdering his wife, Margaret, and their younger son, Paul. Murdoch had a family legacy that is over 100 years old. He lived a lifestyle of privilege and in a world that many of us will never know. According to prosecutors, all that was going to end eventually, and he was getting desperate. The South Carolina Attorney General says Murdoch wasn't just killing his wife and son because of the money he wasn't making. It was everything. It was an entire lifestyle and lifetime that was going to come to an end. He went on to say he believed Murdoch probably loved his wife and son in his own way, but he loved himself more. And killing them was the price he was willing to pay to preserve his way of life. And over the weekend, President Joe Biden used the searing memories of Selma's bloody Sunday to reaffirm his commitment to passing more progressive voting rights protection legislation, even though he faces a hostile Republican-controlled Congress. Activists like Reverend William Barber say they're frustrated with Biden and members of Congress for their unwillingness and the lack of progress on voting rights legislation. And... California Task Force is readying to release a July 1st report making recommendations about reparations. The task force says their recommendations will be a roadmap that can be followed by states around the country. Because as you know, 
where California goes, so does the rest of the nation. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this second hour, it's all about true crime. And in the second hour, we take your phone calls. Give us a call at 1-800-920-1580. If you are watching us via the KBLA app or you're on the KBLA YouTube page, post us a comment, post us a question. We might just read it online. I'm asking in this hour, why are people so fascinated with crime and crime shows? We got a preview also in this hour, the United States versus Mark Ridley Thomas trial, that federal bribery trial starts tomorrow, uh, downtown Los Angeles in a federal court. And KBLA's new justice correspondent, Dionne Raymond, is joining us in this hour. She's going to preview what we can expect from her as she covers that trial gavel to gavel. When we come forward, we're joined by veteran veteran and career prosecutor Bobby Grace and our own justice correspondent Dion Raymond. We're going to do a deep dive on true crime. Why are people really just, some say, exploiting the uh, unfortunate realities that so many people face who are victims of crime? Stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. For terms and conditions. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. True crime now consists of seemingly countless subgenres spanning multiple platforms that include network and cable television, streaming services, and podcasts. There are actually 2,800 true crime podcasts available for users to choose from. This genre is so popular that there are entire TV networks that are devoted to true crime stories like Investigation Discovery and Oxygen. True crime stories encompass ride-along reality shows like Cops, the crime science show Forensic Files, the documentary limited series Making a Murderer, and scripted dramas like Netflix Dahmer series. Why are folks so obsessed with this genre? Well, I decided to ask two real lawyers who have worked on both sides of crime. One is a career prosecutor and one is a former public defender. Joining me is Bobby Grace, who is a veteran prosecutor. Hello, Bobby, and welcome to the show. Hello, Ariva. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. And KBLA's own justice correspondent and former public defender, Dion Raymond, is here for her debut appearance on Ariva Martin in real time. Hello, Dion. Hello, Ariva. So good so to happy. Be here. Well, thank you. We're glad to have you as a part of the KBLA family. And we're going to talk a little later about what you're going to be doing every day on the show at 4.35 p.m., but first, I just want to go in on this 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 genre. Uh, Bobby, we just saw the world, the nation was obsessed with the Alex Murdoch trial, this hellacious uh, trial that involved the murder of a wife, a son. Uh, you know, we we five, six weeks of testimony. I think there were like 60 or 70 witnesses called by the prosecution. We saw the defendant do something that defendants don't typically do in murder, double murder trials, which is get up and take the defense. I mean, take the witness stand in his own defense. And now, Bobby, jurors this morning on all the morning shows, jurors were out talking about why they 
only took three hours to convict Alec Murdoch of double murder. Why do you think you've been in the courtroom? You've I don't know thirty five plus years. What is this obsession with these real life criminal cases? Well, Ariva, I think it, it goes to um, our the public's um, uh, sensation and cessation for wanting to um, get the backstory on things that happen, and so this is kind of tabloid online right like you get to watch in real time what's happening a lot of people don't get to sit on a jury um so they don't get the up close view of what happens at a trial but in a case like murdoch some of the other uh big cases that have happened uh scott peterson comes to mind um the public wants to know all the gory details and uh these shows kind of bring pull back the curtain and allow the general public to get a peek at you know exactly what happened. And I think with the Murdar case, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about it, um, his actions are not really explainable. And so I think that's a lot of the fascination also is that people want to know why he did it, and there's no real good answer for that. You ready? Excuse me. Now that I have your attention, may I ask you this question? May I ask you this question? Why do you believe police brutality continues to exist in this country? Do you believe it to be a systemic problem, or should we judge police misconduct on a case-by-case basis? And what's your opinion on the best course of action to solve the problem? Well, you have come to the right place. You're listening to LA's all-new Progressive Talk radio station. Of the people, by the people, for the people. Hey, I sure appreciate that. It's KBLA Talk 1580. We got you covered round the clock. Round the clock. Racism, we got you. Progressive politics, we got you. Health and wellness education, we have you covered. We're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. A black-owned and operated evidence-based alternative radio station for progressive, open-minded people like you and me. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Welcome home, L.A. Welcome home, L.A. We're all in this together. Let's get it on. It's KBLA Talk 1580, broadcasting from the heart of LA's Lamert Park. You've got a lot to talk about. We are going to have to fight. We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to struggle relentlessly to bring about some peace. Go. All right, uh, Dion, 
there doesn't appear to be any reason that this man would kill his wife and his son. The reason we keep hearing is that we law enforcement you see agents that were following him on two, these financial crimes. Perhaps he wanted to get out of the, the civil litigation that he was in. Perhaps he didn't want his partners to discover that he had stole close to $9 million. So he decided once the prosecution put on evidence about the Snapchat video that his voice was heard on, he had lied to police about being at the kennel right before the murders. Now he had 10 people come forward for the prosecution to say, no, that's his voice. So he decided to take the witness stand. But jurors this morning told National News Show that that was the biggest mistake ever. And possibly it would have been a hung jury had he not taken the witness stand because they said they didn't believe a word that he said. Now, you're a former public defender, which means you have defended criminals in, in criminal trials. How risky is it for someone like Alec Murdoch to take the witness stand uh, and were you surprised the jurors said those were big old crocodile tears? We weren't buying them for a minute. Well, I'm I'm not surprised, Ariva. I mean, it's when it comes to um, big cases like this and and jurors, nothing really surprises me. Number one, I'm not really surprised that he did it. He had everything on the line, his life, um, just totally everything, and and everything was was blowing up. Also, um, it, it could be that his lawyers did not want him to, and he chose to do that. Um, as a former criminal defense attorney, I've had a, a situation or two where a client did that, and it was, you know, to their detriment. He's also a lawyer. And so it, it may have been hard to um, to control him or to exercise client control. But I think that he didn't have anything to lose the fact that he was impeached so badly but even at the same time he he did appear genuinely distraught yeah bobby were you surprised i was a little surprised jurors were hard on him these there was three jurors i was watching this morning on the show and they were like he was crying crocodile tears he was making noises but they were saying no actual tears were rolling down his eyes they said we could have decided the case in 30 minutes because you know they've gotten a lot of criticism folks have said well wait a minute in a complex murder double murder trial they should have spent more time going through the evidence. They should not have come back in three hours. But the jurors are saying we didn't need more time because we never believed him. We always thought he was a liar. Uh, do you think it was fatal to his case for him to take the witness stand in his own defense? It's hard to say, Rita, because um, it, it's kind of incongruent in the sense that they came back so quickly with so much evidence that the prosecution had put on that everything would hang on just Murdoch taking the stand. I thought that um, Dion is right, that a, a lot of times um, defense attorneys have trouble controlling their client, particularly in a situation like this where Murdoch was an attorney and that he would want his voice to be heard. But strategically, if you think about it, um, he had nothing to lose in terms of taking this stand. Uh, so my thought is, is that the jury is saying that a lot of what they um, based their decision on was his actual testimony. But I suspect that it's more, um, for lack of a better word, the mountain of evidence that the prosecution had already put on and that uh, Murdoch just kind of sealed his fate by taking the stand. So I'm glad you mentioned that mountain of evidence, because if you follow the trial, you know there was no direct evidence. Direct evidence meaning there was no eyewitness. They never found the murder weapons, the two 
rifle and shotgun that was used to kill the wife and son. There were no bloody clothes. I'm still wondering about that, Dion. There was such a short window of time for him to kill the wife and son, get back to the house, get the alibi cooked up, get in the car, head to his parents' house, start making all those frantic calls to buy, you know, cook up the alibi. Where are the bloody clothes? And where are the murder weapons? Because they combed that property. I mean, the, they went through that property with a fine tooth comb. They went through the route that he took from the property to his mother's house. They searched his mother's house. So they searched everywhere that they could have, but they haven't found those bloody clothes or those murder weapons. Makes a really good point, Ariva, um, about circumstantial evidence, but it also brings up the issue of the jury and how important Wad Deer is. If you look at the um, O.J. Simpson case, Johnny Cochran really invested in Wadir, not just the questions that he asked. He had a jury consulted. He needed individuals who were willing to suspend their disbelief. So, about- Dion, let me stop you, because my 90 year old aunt, who's a faithful <laughs> viewer, is going to say that lady in that red jacket used this word. What was that word? And what did that mean? So you better you. tell my auntie Thank in St. Louis what that big old water word means. Yes, perfect. Well, here's the opportunity for both sides to question potential jurors before they are impaneled and sworn in. And that process is so key because that's your opportunity, especially in big murder cases, not so much in misdemeanors where you have to move really quickly to find out whether or not individuals are harboring any type of bias, particularly in, in situations that involve law enforcement, there is um, the assumption of goodwill and honesty and veracity and, and truth. And so you have to question jurors like popcorn. A trainer once told me, you have to treat it like popcorn and, and ask the kind of questions that will get individuals to pop and show whether or not they have biases that would disqualify them. Ariva, it's quite possible that when those jurors started that case that they already believed that he was guilty. And sometimes these these ideas and biases aren't um, conscious to them, right? So, and and the fact that they didn't even deliberate, I think they went back there, Reba, and voted right away, then went to lunch and came back. And, and I think that raises a red flag. Well, they did. They said that they took like a straw vote, as most jurors do when they go back to deliberate, And there were one or two who were on the fence or said not guilty. And then they, you know, had some conversation and then they took another vote. It didn't take them long to get to that unanimous guilty vote. Bobby, were you surprised, though? We got a white man. We got a wealthy family. We have a successful personal injury lawyer. He had been, I think, some kind of volunteer prosecutor. But the daddy was a prosecutor. The granddaddy was a prosecutor. The judge had to take a picture of one of the Murdoch men off the wall of the courtroom and the judge in admonishing uh, Alex as he was sentencing him talked about how he was so personally offended by his conduct, the lack of remorse, the the lies that he told on the witness stand. But, you know, this is a white man. This is a white man whose family ran this city for a hundred years. And again, you've been in the courtroom with countless cases involving, I'm sure, you know, where you've prosecuted black and white folks. Uh, were you shocked that a white man of such privilege was uh, brought down? I'm thinking when those black women were on the jury, he's probably saying, oh, some nice little sympathetic black women. They may be on my side, but the black women were hard on him. No, if you kill children or if you kill you know, a spouse under the circumstances that you have here, 
Um, there's going to be a lot of sympathy. And I think the sympathy factor played well. Sympathy I with the victims, you mean, right? Correct. Sympathy factors for the victim. I also think that uh, Murdoch came off as being very privileged. And I probably put off a lot of the jurors. They were like, this is a guy who I can't relate to. Um, and so they were probably very uh, scrutinized everything that he said with a fine-tooth comb. Uh, and to have the judge comment that Murdoch had lied is pretty telling that, you know, that there were a lot of fabrications on the part of Murdoch throughout the case and that the jurors were kind of clued into that from the beginning. I think as Dion, you know, pointed out, I think that a lot of people going into the case um, suspected that Murdoch had killed his wife and his son. And then that just became solidified as the prosecution began to put on his case. Where do you think, Bobby, you know, there's some theories that he had plastic on or something. That's why there wasn't blood splatter, because he blew his son's brains out. The brain apparently flew up to the top of the ceiling, landed on the floor, and people were literally walking over brain matter when they got to that crime scene. And there's no way you can shoot someone with that level of force and not be splattered in blood. I'm a big Sopranos uh, fan. <laughs> and when they kill somebody, there's usually blood. They're wiping off their face, their hands or someplace. So where, where, where are the clothes and where, where are the guns? Well, Ariva, one thing I found in, in all the years uh, of doing prosecution work, that there are just things that the prosecutor is not going to be able to prove. And to speculate as to where this is or where that is or why blood didn't go there or why didn't go blood didn't go here is uh, takes away from uh, the prosecution's ability to tell the story as to what happened and to create a reasonable scenario as to how it happened and sometimes why. Sometimes the why will get you to a conviction. Sometimes the how will get you to an eviction. And I think Dion pointed it out here um, that circumstantial evidence oftentimes is better than direct evidence because mm -hmm. it leads you with puzzle pieces and you put the puzzle pieces together, then it says, okay, this person did it. And uh, I think um, him being a lawyer, there are a number of scenarios of people where he could have known how to do this, how to do that, where you're not going to be able to find, quote unquote, the smoking gun things. That right. You so don't get too hung up on on where those clothes were. Think about all that other circumstantial evidence. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about how victims feel when these true crime stories are told. When you have 2,800 podcasts, when you have scripted, like I, I read something, the family members of victims who were victimized by Jeffrey Dahmer saying, look, this may be entertainment to some, but we lost loved ones. We suffered. Uh, you know, we we are in pain. We're still grieving the loss of our loved ones. So I'm wondering, is our fascination with these stories, or are we being desensitive? Are we being uh, insensitive to the victims' families? Are we making people's tragedies entertainment? You know, is that sick? Is that morbid? Should we be, you know, can we find something else to watch that's not based on these real life stories? There are already two, not one, but two documentaries on Murdoch even before the trial was over. And I suspect there will be many, many more 
uh, telling this story now that they have the conviction, now they have the double murder, I mean, the double life sentences. So we have not seen or heard the last of these stories. When we come forward after news, sports and traffic, more on our true crime segment right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. Justice correspondent Dion Raymond, and we're talking about true crime and this genre and why it's captured the attention of millions of Americans and why whole networks are dedicated to telling uh, the stories of real life criminals and their victims. Bobby, some of the family members say these stories are re-traumatizing, that, that having to watch, uh, whether it's a scripted story like Dahmer, which you know was nominated for a bunch of awards uh, produced by Ryan Murphy, this you know, incredible producer of so many different kinds of shows, or it's, you know, cops or forensic files. Are we ignoring victims and how they play into all of this? Ariva, I think you're hitting on a, a crucial point. Um, because of the, the the advent of all these different media platforms, everybody kind of jumped into the game with respect to being able to put out different content. And I think um, it's kind of like the wild, wild west. There's no regulation and so much pressure on the part of these different media platforms to get out in front of these things. And sometimes they don't think about how the victim's family will feel. I, <clears throat> a lot of the programs that um, are more, more watched they do try to reach out to the victims' families and try to get their participation, um, but just so many that are, are in the uh, public consciousness that it's difficult for these production companies to get to the families to get their blessing. And I think ultimately it does re-traumatize people because they have to live through that, or they have to have their friends telling. I just saw this on identity. I saw this on Discovery. I saw this on Amazon. I saw this on Netflix. And it really is hurtful. And I've talked to a lot of victims who said that they did not want to participate when asked for the very reason that they didn't want to go through reliving what happened to their loved one. And we know, uh, Dion, you don't have to have permission of the victims. You can take these, uh, you can make these reenactments. You can take what's in the public sphere. You can take what's in newspaper articles. You can go down to the courthouse and get copies of the filings of the pleadings. You can get deposition testimony, witness testimony at trial, and you can make a whole show and never, ever contact the victims, uh, which, you know, I don't know. I think I'm torn. There is this element of educating the public and, and some folks that make this genre of television or podcast say, look, we're educating the public about, you know, real life. And these are issues and we shouldn't hide them. We should make them very public. But Dion, help us understand what the differences are. Having been inside a real courtroom for years, People watch these uh, reenactments, they watch these scripted uh, television shows, and they think there's going to be these Perry Mason, and if you're too young to know, know who Perry Mason is, maybe I'll use more relevant, you know, uh, reference like a Johnny Cochran, they're going to have those moments where you're going to break the witness down because your cross-examination is just so powerful. Uh, does that happen in most trials? No, of course not. <laughs> Absolutely not. If only, right? If only. And you're, you're so right, Ariva. I mean, we've got all of this information or most of it in 
within the realm of the public domain. I can, if I have a case number, I can go to, I can go online to LA County Superior Court and look up a case and look up the history of the case and, and who the parties are and who the lawyers are. I think part of it, Ariva, is that there is in our culture a fascination with this genre because we are fascinated with stories. And these stories happen in the extreme. And it takes us out of the life of, of the mundane and the ordinary. And sometimes there's a fascination with some with the uh, stories that, that, that represent the lowest common denominator um, in life and in society. Now, some of them are educational. In, in terms of the, the Dahmer matter, um, even though I no longer practice uh, criminal defense, I am fascinated with it still because I love criminal defense. But with Dahmer, um, I felt it went a little bit too far. It, it, it felt like capitalizing on some of the most horrific crimes that that's happened in our American history or in, in human history. And so I know for myself that I, I wasn't so much interested in. And, and maybe they did it because it, it would be more appealing than if it were um, framed as a documentary. So when it yeah, is, that was actually a scripted, I mean, Shirley Ralph, uh, not Shirley Ralph, Niecy Nash uh, played Nash. a very prominent role uh, in that show. And yeah, I, I don't know. I started watching. It was a little too much for me. It was, I was too afraid. I was like, oh, this is scary. Mm -hmm. uh, I do want to move on, though. We're going to be uh, joined by you, Dion, every day on Ariva Martin in real time at 435 because at the city of Los Angeles, I think the state of California, and probably folks around the nation, particularly African-American folks, are going to be all tuning in to this trial involving very powerful elected official, Mark Ridley Thomas, who's going to be on trial in federal court for a bribery case and 20 counts uh, filed, uh, indictment filed against him by the U.S. Attorney's Office. And although you know no murder involved, and I'm going to be wondering whether bloody clothes are or where the guns are. This is a very significant trial, primarily because of who Mark Ridley Thomas is, what he means to the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles. And I think, you know, as we look at African-Americans, the criminal justice system, that's always an issue, how African-Americans are treated uh, in the criminal justice system. There was an article out in the LA Times today about Mark Ridley Thomas's legal defense fund. And I had one of the LA Times column, columnists on in the first hour and talking about it. Uh, Bobby, I know you had a chance to read that article. How did it strike you? I mean, is there, you've been in this game a long time. You're an African-American male, obviously. You've tried folks, black, white, yellow, I'm sure every race there is. Uh, is there a difference when you have an African-American a defendant like a Mark Ridley Thomas who says, look, I'm going to fight the U.S. government back. I'm going to do it with the best lawyers that money can buy. I'm a higher, high price lawyers because I'm allowed to raise money for it. And I have my own money to spend on it. There seems to be this, I don't know, this kind of tone, I thought, in the, the article, like, how dare you, black man, go out and hire a thousand dollar an hour lawyer uh, to defend you? where other folks similarly situated, they took a plea deal or they had public defenders. They didn't hire $1,000 lawyers. Uh, is that common in what you see in your practice? Well, Ariva, frankly, uh, what we're going to see with the Mark Reilly uh, Thomas trial is very different um, than uh, most of the types of trials that go on every day uh, in downtown courts and some of the branch courts, courts here in L.A. County. Um, one, because he is a prominent Black man. Uh, two, uh, because uh, he has the, the resources to fight this case. Majority of Black men who are 
within the criminal justice system are indigent and they're being represented by either um, the public defender, the alternate public defender, or um, what we call a bar panel, that, that's private lawyers that are paid by the county. Another big thing to point out, Ariva, though, is that Margaret Lee Thomas is in the public consciousness, um, not only in the Black community, but um, the state, really, because of his long tenure in the state legislature as a city, uh, city council member, then as a board of supervisors, then back to the city council. Um, so people have their opinions about Mark Ridley Thomas. He, he's definitely beloved in the Black community. Uh, and it's very rare that you have a defendant go on trial where there's so many people that have opinions about this. But I think for Los Angeles, it's going to harken back to uh, O.J. Simpson and mm. the public consciousness about O.J. Simpson and how people felt about him. Um, and so we'll see, you know, how it plays out. Um, I think everybody in the criminal justice system should be glad that Mark Ridley Thomas has the resources to defend himself in the case. I think that's a good thing uh, for the, um, the criminal justice system. And we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, if you really believe in the presumption of innocence, if you believe, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty and that everyone, you know, is in, uh, entitled constitutionally to a fair trial and to counsel and the best counsel that your money can buy, I can't imagine anyone having to fight a case against the U.S. government with all of its resources. And let's face it, U.S. attorneys are, you know, some of the, the brightest lawyers in the game. Many of them go to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, UCLA, they go to the best law schools. They come out, they are those thousand dollar lawyers when they come out the U.S. attorney's office. They often go into private practice and can command those kinds of fees. So I, I really don't know why people are like surprised that someone who is beloved, as you said he is, would be able to call on his friends and friends say, look, I, I can't get into whether you're guilty, innocent. All I know is you rolled for me and now I'm a ride for you. And that's what friends do. So uh, it's going to be interesting. When we come forward, we're going to talk about Dion and what you're going to be doing in that courtroom every day and what you're going to be reporting back to Ariva Martin in real time. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. So Dion Raymond, former public defendant and new KBLA justice correspondent, you will be in the courtroom, in that federal courtroom where a city council member, LA city council member, former L.A. County supervisor, former state legislator, both in the House and the Senate, will face this 20-count indictment, this uh, prosecution for federal bribery charges. What should we expect in the first week of this trial? We know it kicks off tomorrow, Tuesday, 8.30, downtown federal court. No cameras in the courtroom, in federal court, so we're going to have to rely on folks like you who will be sitting in the courtroom. And we know KBLA is going to be one of the few, if not the only, station covering this trial, gavel, gavel. So people tuning in every day, 435, will be able to get uh, all of the information about what happened in that courtroom along with our analysis. So what should they expect first week, uh, Dion? I think in the first week, or at least in the first few days at Ariva. What we can expect is what um, we could describe as more housekeeping type of matters. Um, we'll be looking at uh, what type of motions and limine 
will be filed and, and those motions um, will come from both sides, Areva, in order to exclude certain evidence um, that um, is not relevant or would distract or mislead the jury, those types of things. Also, we're looking at um, jury selection, as we mentioned earlier. And um, I'm very interested to see um, how it is approached by both sides. And then also we may be looking at, uh, I don't think we'll get to it um, this quickly, but opening statements. And I think that'll be the first time where we will really hear um, from um, uh, Margaret Lee Thomas's defense, the approach that they're gonna take in defending him. Uh, Bobby, you, when we were talking about the Alex Murdoch trial, you said that uh, you know oftentimes jurors may come into a courtroom already having made a decision. We know in L.A. County and across the state of California, the allegations against Mark Ruey Thomas involving alleged bribery of a dean at the University of Southern California. On, uh, uh, the allegations are that he bribed this dean in order to get his son uh, into the college tuition free and to get him some kind of paid position at the university. A lot of publicity. How do you think that's going to impact the jurors ability to listen to the uh, facts that are presented, listen to the evidence that's presented, listen to the admonition that the judge will give about the law and make an unbiased decision. You know, not come in there with their own uh, conclusions about guilt or innocence. That's kind of hard when you had so much publicity in a case, isn't it? Well, Ariva, let me push back a little bit on that. I think that um, what you're going to find is that a lot of people, potential jurors, don't follow um these things as closely as we. I mean, everybody uh, don't read five, ten newspapers <laughs> like we do, Bobby. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> and what Damn. I think, if, if it's not on TikTok, if it's not, uh, you know, on on any of these apps or whatever, you're going to find that a lot of people just don't know. They may know generally that he's been charged, but I think you're going to find that the potential jurors in this case have really have no idea what their facts are behind all this. And that's probably good for the prosecution and good for Mark Ridley Thomas's team because they'll be able to persuade minds and there won't be um, people who have preconceived notions about this. That's an excellent point. And people always ask, you know, how can someone who has been in the media get a fair trial? And you just gave us the answer. Uh, not everybody is waking up every morning on their news apps. You know, if it's not on social media, if it's not on TikTok, if you're a certain age, if it's not on Facebook, if you're a certain other age group, uh, you may not know about it. Uh, and, you know, unless you're a news junkie or you work in the legal profession, you're right. And Dion, let's let's set expectations. This ain't double murder. This ain't sexy. You know, there are no scandals. There is no stealing of $9 million from your law partners. There's no taking, you know, 60 Oxycontin pills a day. None of that stuff that was in the latest Alex Murdoch trial that captured the nation. So how is a civil trial involving bribery going to be different than a double murder trial involving a family? Well, very simply, there are no lives lost. And so um, that you know, really in and of itself is is just different in, in terms of texture, in terms of, you know, how it captures people's attention or imaginations. But Ariva, I want to push back just a little bit on Bobby, because I think people do read the newspaper. Well, push on back. This is the place. <laughs> this is two of us and one of him. Let's get them, girl. All right. And, and this is very common for Bobby and myself anyway, because people do read the newspaper. People will hear about this in the news. Ariva, as you mentioned, this is an individual 
who has been in politics for a very long time. And even Bobby, in our own discussions at times, you um, talked about how beloved he is and a central figure that he has been in the area that he represents and to Black people and what he's done for MLK Hospital and how that's become a jewel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that people will be interested in this. I just don't think that, um, you know, when you don't have murder and you don't have death, you know, sometimes people read it and then they kind of move on. Right. Well, let me, to your point, let me put a, put a punctuation mark there. There was a prayer vigil held for Mark Ridley Thomas last night, Sunday night at a prominent uh, United Methodist Church here. And I commented to someone, this church probably ain't seen that many people in a long time, definitely probably since COVID. The church was packed out. And we know churches are not packing out these days because folks are doing church online. Uh, but hundreds of people turned out and there were people ranging from very prominent folks to, you know, a, a huge assortment of pastors throughout the city. Folks flew in uh, very prominent folks such as Dr. Cornell West was in the audience. So it drew a great deal of attention. There were media folks there because uh, what happened at that church service is quoted in the article I talked about today. So I do think there's going to be an unusually high level of interest, particularly given it's not, you know, the Bronco chase. It's not, you know, NFL former player turned movie star turned commercial actor. So we don't have some of the you know, high profile elements in terms of, you know, what makes cases, and I hate to use this word, but I will, sexy. Uh, but there's some significant issues. And I think, there, Bobby, there probably will be some players, names of all, you know, if you live in the state of California, you're going to recognize who are on those witness lists. Uh, could be county supervisors, could be other elected officials. So I think this trial is going to have a lot of twists and turns. And Dion is going to bring us gavel to gavel, <laughs> those twists and turns. And help us unpack it because a lot of late, and we're going to stop using those motion and lemonades and all that Latin language that Dion loves. And don't nobody know what she's talking about, but me and you, my aunt going to be blowing me up on the phone. What is that lady in red? She keeps using all those terms. So we're going to break it down for everybody, whether you got a fifth grade education or whether you got a PhD right here at KBLA, Ariva Martin in real time is going to be the place uh, for a complete analysis and gavel to gavel on the United States of America. And that's important. We're talking about the U.S. government. This is the feds, y'all. This is the FBI. So it's the FBI folks going to be on the witness stand. This is, you know, the David and Goliath of trials. So even though Mark Ray Thomas has hired some thousand dollar an hour lawyers, trust me, the government has unlimited resources. And so it's going to be a battle. And he said uh, he's up for it. So we're going to watch what happens. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Dion. I will see you tomorrow at 435. Thanks to everyone that tuned in to Ariva Martin in real time. Continue to follow this conversation. Follow me on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin. And after some news, sports and traffic, the Raw Report. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.